Hello and welcome to Dinesh Guarda YouTube podcast series. Uh, right now in partnership with freedomx.com, citiesabc.com and openbusinesscouncil.org and syndicated as well in our platforms, intelligenthq.com and a lot of other platforms where we actually have been working and collaborating. Um, here in our series where we are actually passing uh, quite a, a substantial benchmark of over 200 interviews and as well, we are pleased to tell our audience that at the moment, our YouTube podcast series is in position 1,700 of the top um, uh, YouTube channels in technology in the world. So I would like to share this with our audience. And uh, today, I'm very excited to bring someone that I actually know for some time and I really admire. And as well, I would say that is a force of nature. So we have uh, here with us Professor Lisa Short. And then I would say that is a... A woman, Leonardo da Vinci, because she touches a lot of different areas from an academic to an influencer and as well uh, an expert in the areas of technology that normally are um, areas quite deep and uh, where there's not a lot of females. So I'm very excited as well to have an expert that is um, a strong lady, but as well a strong understanding of these areas and actually one of the recognized top thought leaders and influencers in the world of these areas. So we're talking about uh, an expert in digital tech, blockchain, crypto assets, and ed tech, and as well an academic that is a preeminent innovator and systemic change in the areas of working between different countries and as well in, in cutting edge digital technologies. And there's been always on the cutting edge forefront of the things happening, but as well looking at, uh, and I think that's uh, one thing we're going to be touching in this interview is that uh, uh, Professor Lisa has been working between a lot of different cultures and backgrounds from Australia and UK, where she's more uh, probably based, but as well working with uh, APAC, Africa, Singapore, Europe, and the UAE. So uh, Professor Liz is the founder of Arete Business Performance Mind Shifting, Epateos Collective Limited, and uh, as well being involved in Digital Edge Limited and Africa Agritech, and uh, is inventor of several patents, and um, as well as been looking at how we can actually combine cyber healthy businesses with people and fooled by inclusion and education and that is a very important thing as well for people listening to our podcast that is one of our main focus she's the author of multiple papers articles and reports and the current work includes co-authoring books on blockchain enabled ecosystems for higher and continuing education and on blockchain data ai iot privacy and cyber health for businesses and uh, she's been appointed to the Global Foundation of Cyber Studies and Research as an expert senior policy analyst and leads um, and is the group chair of the special interest group of CISME that focus on cyber public health and research and support SMEs and startups. And uh, she's as well old multiple board level of companies. And I would say that some of the partnerships she's been having is working with the likes of United Nations, the World Summit of Nobel Peace Laureates, the Kairos Society uh, the European, of the European Union, and the International Network of Appropriate Technologies, just to mention a few. So I'm looking forward to have Professor Lizen talk about a brilliant career, but as well how she sees the world and technology. So welcome to our series, Professor Lisa. 
Thanks, Dennis. What a, what a, I'm very honoured. <laughs> Thanks for that introduction. Well, it's just part of your CV, but I think it's important for people listening to us uh, who is here uh, talking with us, and I always like to highlight in a good and respectful way. So I want to start by, well, someone like you that has been on the forefront of technology and education and as well a lot of work on social impact and making bridges between different areas. How did you come to put all of this together? So I think from a background, uh, a cultural background and education background, and probably if you're going to talk about the, a bit about your education, I would love to hear that from you. Yeah, thanks, Dennis. Look, I always, I nearly always start with, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a regional country girl from Australia and, uh, you know, part of my driver is uh, in 1980 when I finished school, uh, it was an era where women, for example, certainly didn't work in technology. And in fact, majority weren't educated. So, uh, and I and I would just say that I didn't fit. Uh, I was academically bright and and brilliant, and you know, ducks the school and did all of those sorts of things. But most importantly, um, at that time in my life, uh, women when they got married weren't allowed to work, let alone be educated. And so, I sort of had two two options. The only way you could get educated was either be an accountant or a nurse. And I didn't want to be a nurse, I actually wanted to be a doctor. So I thought, well, I'll go the accounting path. And so my first degree was in accounting and financial management. And just to throw a, a bit of a spanner in the works, I decided I'd do geography as well because I love geography. So uh, it was just an eclectic start to my educational career. But what's really quite profound is those, the basis of accounting and financial management and economics and how um, the world work world worked in business. I did macro and microeconomics. And so that very early education piece for me was really important as a basis. Um, and I realised very quickly that I loved business. I loved um, working with people. I loved entrepreneurship. I loved sort of questioning status quo, going, well, that doesn't seem to work. Just the same as not being educated as a woman doesn't seem to work. I'll, I'll push the boundaries and see how far I can go. And so that was sort of where I started. And then uh, as it does happen, you know, get married and have children. And one of my first early careers was actually um, as a Tupperware manager. And I'm really proud of, of all the elements of my career that I bring together. Uh, and I was one of Australia's leading Tupperware managers. So creative, that was really my first business of my own. Uh, and I had 36 managers and um, I learned all about sales. And I, most importantly, though, I learned about building relationships. And so out of each of the stages in my career, that was one that, I would say I learned about relationship-driven business because uh, selling a product per se is not what I do well. Building relationships is something that I do do well and valuing those. And that, to me, was something I got out of that, that era. I then moved into, uh, as it happens, um, my, my first husband uh, was uh, an ambulance officer and, uh, and so we worked in health and high-risk industries and I started out you know, people would ask me to educate in those areas, which I did. So I went in and did formal education studies. And I gradually over the years uh, was good at what I did and could see things from, I would say, in a four-dimensional perspective. And so I started moving into risk management um, and risk assessment, wrote uh, risk management systems for some of the biggest mining companies in the world and so forth. And, of course, that brought in all my careers in geography and relationship building and all of those sorts of things. But what I did find at that moment was massive inefficiencies in business that I just couldn't understand. I couldn't understand why businesses would not use technology to support themselves um, and make their processes um, better. 
And I guess that's sort of where that would have been in the, the mid-1990s where I started to sort of say, well, you know, what if we did it a different way? What if we could use technology? Uh, and, and that was really where my, my career into technology and business started. But I always supplement that conversation with the fact that technology is an, an enabler. And I know, you know, from, our, from, from your work around the, uh, the um, Smart Cities Project that it is a social contract. It's about people. Technology is not about technology. It's about making lives of people better and businesses better, more profitable, but um, also the, the more profitable and more efficient businesses are, they actually employ more people. Um, if our jobs are better and, and um, you know, we're healthier and more productive and we enjoy our work more, then, then the world is actually a better place. So that's sort of where I, I moved into that space. So education and um, the constancy of improvement with technology is sort of profound for me at, at, that, at that time. And, of course, then careers move on. Uh, I moved, I worked in high-risk industries, always mining resources, civil construction, health, and people would say, wow, that's really eclectic career. You seem to have been all over the place. Well, actually, I haven't. Um, the, the common thread has been risk management and risk assessment, avoiding unwanted outcomes. And there's, that's the sort of connector between the industries. It doesn't really matter whether you're working in mining or whether you're working in health. Technology and managing an unwanted outcome or risk is, is sort of inherent to that. And to do that, you've got to educate and, and then use technology. And that's really where I got to where I am. Blockchain, well, that's an interesting one because uh, along the journey, uh, I and I didn't even know this when I started talking about um, what I wanted. At some point, and this was in the mid sort of 2010, 11, 12 period, and I was working in the health industry and in particular in Australia where I was asked by the Productivity Commission to value um, how, how could we value the 12.5% of the population who work in um, ageing health and disability service, support services? Um, and how could we do that? And when I started doing some research into the industry, found that the churn rate, as we call for people, was 46%. So that to me indicated there's something wrong. If people are moving from job to job, they weren't leaving the industry, they were just going from employer to employer to employer. And so what I realised was, I wanted some form of technology that would stop people being harmed but at the same time prevent an employer going any further until they could actually be improved. And so I sort of wanted this compliance technology, if you like, and that was one of my first patents. And, um, and my first advent into, I didn't have any idea at that point that I was actually talking about blockchain. And so it wasn't until sort of about 12, 2013, 14, where I went, oh, wow, smart contracts, blockchain technology. I can use smart contracts. And so that was my first advent into blockchain and, and um, digital technologies. And, of course, at that time was the, the craze around ICOs and so forth. And, and to be honest, that wasn't my passion and interest. What I was interested in was the underlying technology. And that sort of briefly how I've gotten to where I am uh, and uh, and continue to to this day. That's a very impressive background and as well it shows uh, I think from Australia to the world uh, I think uh, how you you bridge a lot of different areas of different interests and to come and, and becoming one of the most influential personalities on this area. So I would like to come back to 
the bridge between the academic and the business world. So you've been always having this bridge, which, uh, and as well, you are a professor as well, but as well, like you said, you've created patents, which is kind of another level of, of uh, I would say, the top level. Uh, so can you tell us about this academic bridge between the academic and the world? Because normally, I think in Europe in particular, the academics tend to be terrible in business. Um, and actually, there's actually a lot of complexities because the failure of business and the preparation is a very big thing. For in the US, there's a much more, I think, bridge between, uh, a balance between bridge and academic. But in Europe, it's quite complex and challenging. Even me being Portuguese and partly French, I see that uh, sometimes people look at me, okay, okay, the business people is a bit always strange. So if you can tell us a bit that this background, how do you always coordinate the academic, the research, the writing of patents and papers with the business acumen and the business, which is a big thing in itself, the, both both things. Absolutely. Look, I, lo I often call myself the least academic academic. Uh, in fact, sometimes when I do listen to academics, I really want to poke my eyes out with a blunt stick almost because um, they have no idea about business. So. I'm very proud of the fact that I'm an industry-based um, professor. So my professorship was um, granted to me um, by a university in South Africa, actually. And it was I was granted a professorship um, not through doing an academic PhD. Mine was through industry. So it was my lifetime. It was 35-year uh, you know, history of commitment and loyalty and hard work and tenacity working with industry and business and learning about industry and business. Yes, my early career was academic and, you know, multiple um, bachelor's degrees. But I have a profound challenge with the way that normally academics become professors and, and you know, um, PhDs and so forth when they're doing, you know, research sometimes that has no relevance to the economic or business world. And, and often academics, and there's a sort of a funny pathway, academics go to school go to a bigger school and then go back to be in charge of another school. And they actually never leave and go out and work in industry. They've never run a business themselves. They don't know the hardships. They don't know the struggles. They don't know how to build technology that's relevant. They don't know how to build relationships and create ecosystems of, of people. And so I'm very proud of the fact that um, my professorship is, has come from my, um, loyal, my you know, hard work over 35 years in industry. And I'm really proud of the, the amazing relationships that I've, that I've built. And I quite often surprise people because somebody will say, you know, um, you know, how do you know this person? They call me the networking queen and I'll go, well, I know Mark and I know Adam and I know the founders of Siri and I know the founders of Skype and I'm, you know, no Mark Zuckerberg and I know all of these people and I've been at the UN and I've spoken with them and I've done all of those things. But you know what? They're just people. They've all started the same way that we did. And so I don't see those people as as I don't put them on a pedestal, I see them as having had a journey. And so for me, that's really um, that, you know, the way that I've gotten to where I am. And I actually try to drag the academic world into um, some place that's of relevance in the 21st century. I mean, I struggle with the fact that universities are sometimes supposed to be seen to be the educators and yet they have some of the worst technology skills and 21st century skills on the planet. Uh, you know, even at the end of end of COVID, when I'm taught, I'm doing, you know, I did the, I convened the 76th um, Science Summit for the UN and I had about 30 to 35 of the world's leading academic scientists and professors around. Um, we were doing a, a project around what was called the um, uh, South-South North 
um, collaboration, which means all the, all the science and research that's done in the Southern Hemisphere needs to connect to the higher innovation areas of the Northern Hemisphere. And I was beside myself because I think if I saw up one more set of nostrils on Zoom and saw dark faces, that's the basic you know, that, that there was just lack of skill in, in digital technology and lack of understanding around blockchain, how it can empower universities with IP and all sorts of other things. So for me, I see that, you know, I'm that rogue academic really that um, likes to drag an academic world that is sitting 30 to 50 years behind the rest of the development of the world and drag it to the table of innovation and, and get them to connect with industry. In fact, one of the big programs that, that I'm involved with globally is called the Global Market Acceleration Program, um, where I'm adjunct professor to La Trobe University in Melbourne. And they've had a very successful program. And what it does is it uses the diaspora of industry experts around the world to what find ways to accelerate um, businesses to, to um, penetrate international markets. And it's industry-led. So these are, these are startups that are being nurtured and supported and graduates that are being nurtured and supported through an, through an academic world. But we're dragging them to the world of relationships, um, ecosystems, frontier technology, delivering workshops on how they can really engage um, with business and, and, and drive their businesses forward and use, you know, frontier technologies um, to better their businesses from the ground up. And so... To me, that's where this hybrid nature and, and, and the integration, uh, you know, works really well. I look, I'm called a design ecosystem thinker. And, you know, like you, when, when you did the, the, the um, smart cities contract um, uh, report, um, you look at the ecosystems and look at the touch points and you look to see where there's weaknesses and you look to see, well, how can we improve those connections you know, etc. And I guess that's that's where I see myself um, as fitting between these two worlds. We have to have both. So I often talk about academic, and it's not that I disrespect the research. In fact, I don't. There's some incredible people um, that work in in the academic world, but they have to engage with industry, uh, and they have to engage with specialists in industry, because without that they'll be left behind and the relevance of, of education can never be left behind. It has to be bridged with us in industry who, who know about how this technology can support businesses and, and make them better. I mean, blockchain is an incredible one. Uh, you know, a big project I'm doing, I supported um, with uh, LawTech UK, which is a division of Tech Nation, was around smart legal contracts. And I work with them and Dean Armstrong to talk about how smart legal contracts can empower small to medium enterprises because that's an area that's often left out. But the academics don't see that, um, those linkages. They don't see the importance of, of that sector. They often work with the corporates and, and research. So that's sort of where I fit. I fit in this space of, of, of pulling and using my academic skills and my ability to be um, you know, a deep thinker, a critical thinker and an analyst and a researcher and all of those, but to bring it into industry and, and to be industry-led and industry-focused. Yeah, and I'm completely agreeing with you. So, so on. and I think this is kind of a big thing actually for the business world because there's definitely a divide between the research and the business. For an interesting example, I, 
I did a research with actually someone very high profile in the European Union. And for instance, the European Union is investing trillions of dollars in technology and they don't have a list of patents. And this shows <laughs> how complex and actually um, how challenging we are in the business world because, of course, we have people like us that are probably 50 years ahead. And then we have uh, the rest of the world that is, for instance, uh, one of the things that we discuss in this program is sponsored by um, openbusinesscouncil.org and as well Cities ABC for us. Two, two things very simple. There's 450, around 450 million micro SMEs and SMEs. And most of them don't even have a digital presence at all. Mm. And they represent the big chunk of the world economy, especially probably not the big chunk of the money, really big money, but they represent the big jobs and most mm. of the jobs in the world. So I know that uh, and this brings me to my next question. Uh, so in your world work and as well career, you've been always privileging, first of all, bridges between people, like you said, but as well uh, SMEs and startups. And you've been bringing your acumen as both a business leader and as well a technologist to find solutions on this. And you have a huge uh, focus around working with Africa, working as well in different areas. So I would like to, first of all, how did that start it, first of all? And second, a bit of uh, some of the things in the project that you can highlight to us about what we've been doing in these areas of um, making the theory and the practice working the best possible ways. Yeah, look, my work around the small business um, tranche if you like I mean what's not known is is that small businesses occupy greater than 95% of the global economy and they employ nearly 90% of the world's population and yet often when we talk emergent technology particularly areas like blockchain and, and the benefits that it can bring we're talking about what impact that has on the corporate world which is only five percent of the economy and I go well imagine if we translated the benefits of that to small businesses um, and I can only you know I can state some, you know lots of stats if we improve the education around blockchain to SMEs by one percent so if we educated one percent of all SMEs on the benefits of blockchain overnight we'd add nearly true two trillion dollars to the global economy now that's a lot of money but it also employs a lot of people and it would make those businesses more efficient. I think of the last two years um, of, as you said, many small businesses um, don't even have a digital presence. And, and the definition of an SME can still be pe people that have a, a wrong impression of an SME. An SME is really just um, corporately, you know, um, defined by, by corporate legislation. And it can still be somebody that has less than 50 shareholders can have turnover of several hundred million dollars and still have several hundred staff. Um, but they don't tend to invest in innovation. And so I look at those grouped businesses and go, well, how can we empower them? You know, if we look at things like, again, smart legal contracts, smart legal contracts have the ability to empower employment contracts, long payment terms on invoicing. It shifts the balance of power. Blockchain and smart legal contracts it shifts the balance of power that sits unfairly with corporates at the moment so how did I get involved in this I go back to probably my my world of work um, with the one of the first businesses I had with my my second husband and we had a a business that that um, managed education but also emergency response equipment for high-risk industries and we could produce an amazing product 
but we were constantly competing against the big corporate providers for tenders and contracts. So it might have been, for example, you know, Rio Tinto wanted a supply contract for all their pre-hospital emergency care equipment, their servicing of their um, either mines rescue equipment and so forth. And we were competing against the big companies like Ferno and St John and all of those who had a corporate background. We could produce a better product at a very similar price but were constantly challenged because we were a small business as opposed to a corporate. And the challenge is that when you compete in that corporate market, e.g., your long payment terms, you might put in a, you might win the tender, but it might take you three months, 120 to 160 days to get paid. Now, for a small business, they can't carry that cost. They end up taking out overdrafts and mortgages and so forth. And you can have all the terms and conditions under the sun that say you're you're supposed to be paid in 30 days. Try enforcing that. Try enforcing that if you're supplying to an IBM or to an Amazon or to a Microsoft or whatever as a small business. Smart contracts, smart legal contracts can do that because it will happen. If you put a smart legal contract into place and it says that you ought to be paid in 30 days and you're not and there's interest gets charged, that money can go into escrow and sit there and it will happen. We can tokenize that and we can do lots of stuff. That's profound in terms of providing and, you know, levelling up that imbalance. We can also give access to small businesses to legal services that they could never have before. And that sort of leads me to my, my second patent where, you know, I work in a startup in the SME space and, I, and I'm seeing startups, and I'm sure you have too, Dennis, who don't go to lawyers first uh, and to the legal fraternity to build shareholders' deeds and shareholders' contracts and, and make sure that the infrastructure and the foundations of their business is solid. They don't do that. They don't go, they don't protect their IP. They don't create patents. They don't, they don't invest in those core foundational legal areas because it's too expensive. If they get challenged by something, a small business rarely takes on, you know, judicial reviews. They, they rarely take on, um, you know, challenges about attracting talent because they can't afford to, because, you know, they can't afford to pay the sort of costs that are involved. But we can set up white-labeled content and contracts and smart contracts to, to, to support them do that. But the thing that we're lacking is that's not widely known. Um, you know, and there's gaps. And, you know, we talked about this, I know, when, when the the, um, the uh, Smart Cities uh, report was re- released, if we don't have an entry point and an exit point around identity and, and access to these great technologies, then we can't move forward. And so that's why I'm really passionate about that. And I guess there's been some areas in my own career because I've, you know, most, most entrepreneurs, we're, we're small businesses. Um, you know, we're still considered small business. You can have a multi-million dollar exit, but you're still a small business if you're not a public company. Um, and so, you know, I look at some of the, fa- and, I do, and I say this, the, the corporate failures that I've had, and nearly every one of them has been a legal challenge. It's been a challenge. And I know we've all, if, if there's an entrepreneur on this planet that says they haven't had one, they'd have to be lying because we've all had successes and we've all had failures and we've all had things we've had to learn from. And I look at these technologies and think, wow, this is a, an exciting time if we get it right, if we get this right and we educate those who really need to be educated, and that is 95% of the economy. And that's where my 
my absolute passions lie. And I guess it, it comes back to my, I'm grounded in where I came from. I didn't come from money. I didn't come from a corporate world. I came from a small regional country town and I, I come from regional areas where they are the backbone of the economy. And, and that's why we've got to work hard in this area. Yeah, and this is one of my passions and that's why I created as well Open Business Council. And I think you touch an area that is more important because this is even, I think, special right now with the concept of, first of all, as we become digital literates uh, and digital literacy, there's a huge divide. Uh, and the divide, like you said, is, is there's legal, there's foundational. Even me that I've been managing banks and big corporations, I did a lot of mistakes. Actually, I, I left three projects because I didn't do good contracts, including a bank. So, so I think the point right now is, of course, I understand SMEs. And I think this is going to be probably more complex as we get into blockchain iterations, because like you said, at the moment, uh, for instance, um, the credit scores, the bank accounts, the AML, the KIC is a complete nightmare. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think uh, if you are a company that tries to do business with another country, you never know if the company exists, first of all. But secondly, you might have been blocked because you receive a payment from another company and your bank has a well, legacy system that does know. Or then you receive the payment and the bank takes you 3%, which is a huge amount of money if it's a big amount. So there's a lot of very practicalities that everyone listening to us, I'm sure, is going through, whatever your smaller business. But I would like to touch being an Australian that has been as well working in Africa and the UK, like we discussed before, a bit of uh, practicalities, any case study you want to share with us, especially the work you've been doing in Africa. I know as well that Australia is doing a lot of work in Africa and this investment yeah. significantly, but yeah. I would like to hear case studies or any kind of more positive things and as well where you see the bridges and you could actually make a big difference. And I know that you work with the United Nations and as well you have the project with AgriTech. Uh, there's a lot of things in terms of FinTech and, and uh, blockchain any one or two projects that you would highlight? Because I think that's very important because sometimes you only think about the problems, but we don't look at the wonderful things that uh, people like you are doing and you're doing fantastic things on that level. Yeah, look, the, the work in, with Africa and Africa Agritech was an interesting time we actually started. So the project really was to um, increase the uptake of emerging technology, in this case, blockchain um, technologies for in Agritech. Uh, and in, in Africa, over 80% of food production is actually done by women. But what's interesting is 80% of food production is done by women, but only 15% of resources are controlled by women. So the challenge that we have is that although women are producing uh, and providing food security in the food chain, uh, they don't have access, equal access to resources, whether it be assets such as land ownership and, and you know, um, owning the physical assets or access to credit or access to finance. Uh, and so there's a huge gender imparity, uh, imbalance uh, and a lack of parity. And so that was the, the work around Africa Agritech. And so out of that, we initially designed our, the, the early stages of uh, the patent that I've gone on to develop because I stood back from the industry of ag tech per se, and looked at, well, actually, what actually is the problem? And the problem sits with, it could be ag tech, it could be, it could be a woman in Australia, in UK, in Europe or anywhere, 
there is a gender imbalance with access to resources, whether you're a startup, whether you're in ag tech or whatever. So, I mean, we know, for example, that women get less than 3% of all the available venture capital. There's a huge um, disparate uh, relationship between uh, women entrepreneurs because of lack of resources, et cetera. So I took away the problem was ag tech and the problem was Africa. But I took it to a bigger perspective and then went to, you know, my work with the UN and went, the challenge here is, is about bias because if we can eliminate bias out of these decision-making processes and use technology, particularly blockchain technology in the decentralised process to make an unbiased decision, then we can use that process for anything and it doesn't just impact women. It would also impact people who've had, uh, you know, poor credit ratings in their past but through no fault of their own. It can help developing nations. It can, can support small businesses. So I really took away the concept of it just being ag tech and Africa and said, well, the problem is really not just Africa. It's the biased process. And so that was the, how I moved into to using and uh, developing um, the patent around using decentralised consensus mechanism to make decisions or, autonomously using blockchain without bias. And that was where the Africa Agritech project started. Unfortunately, the UK government, obviously with COVID, we had a grant um, from Innovate UK but, of course, as everybody knows, with COVID, the UK and everybody else around the world pulled back all their contributions to, um, you know, normally they have a 7% uh, of GDP that goes to emerging nations to develop innovative projects. The UK government pulled all that and it dropped down to 1% to 2%. So we couldn't continue with the Africa Agritech project as it was, but what we did do is we connected our women farm holders that we had established as partners to other established projects so that they could still continue to um, be engaged um, into the supply chain. We wanted to be able to digitise them from um, farm production to at least get to the point where they could sell their product on a, on a digital trade platform. So we had to digitise them get them to a trade platform so they could at least get digitised and then once they could get digitised and start getting revenues in, we could go back and work with them when obviously the world got over COVID and start to offer them new access to resources. And so that leads me to the second part, which so we didn't stop. One thing about women and me is that I have a tenacity like no one else, I, don't, I think, on this planet, tell me no and I'll come out fighting. And so I went, mm, okay, so we can't do that because the UK government's pulled money out of that. That's okay. Understand that. How do we move forward on this process? And so at the same time that pulled, I started working with Bedford Road Capital and Sustainable Capital and a few other um, stakeholders in Estonia and have been um, responsible for the creation of what's called a new development bank called EIBID. And the first of those impact bonds went live last week and that, will be based on the technologies and of this lack of bias using decentralised um, consensus mechanisms to make unbiased decisions. And so women like those farm holders or small business holders or women in entrepreneurship 
can apply to the development bank's impact bonds, which will be tokenized, and the decision will be made on metrics and outcomes that will go out to a decision-making process that goes out on a blockchain that's decentralized. So instead of one person or one VC making a decision and somebody having a standing pitch in front of them, it'll go out to a decentralized mechanism. And so that work, one project led to the next and led to the patent that sits in behind the EIB Development Bank. And of course, our very proud, our first uh, impact bond uh, will be around the Ukraine redevelopment bond. The second one will be a gender impact bond. So that, that amount of uh, money will only be available for women-led enterprises. And then we will have an, an SME and a startup and entrepreneurship impact bond. And, of course, they'll be tokenised as well, So, uh, which means that we will be able to bring in uh, the mums and dads, if you like, investors who've never been able to invest in entrepreneurship and provide resources as a way of return on investment on, on small amounts of capital because generally the entry point to get into a family fund or a VC fund is too high for most people. And so that's sort of how the Africa Agritech project, which had money pulled from it, we went ahead and I went ahead with determination and went, no, nah, this is going to go further. We need to continue this work. And we've gone on to do that uh, with the EI Bid Development Bank. And, of course, there's been lots of touch points and other research projects off that and a lot of work involved in that. So That is really impressive. And uh, thank you so much because I think that is a, a fantastic case study. Uh, congratulations, first of all. So, so for me to understand, uh, and I want to touch, so you mentioned the work with the United Nations and as well the novel and, and, and the, some other things that, are, that, is, that we, I mentioned before. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Um, so some of the work you've been doing, because of course I know that United Nations is a fantastic organization, but very fragmented and it's sometimes very complex to work between the different things. So if you could give me a bit yeah. an over, overview of that work, because I, I would like to touch as well, because you have so much different heads, but it's a very important thing because there's a lot of research, a lot of fantastic work being done. And normally you only look at uh, the problems, but as well, some, some great things there. Yeah. Again, I think, um, you are correct. We often do look at the challenges, but I, I don't see them. I always like to see it as a challenge, not a problem, um, because a challenge, if it's a challenge there, there's always a solution. So my work at the United Nations um, started sort of way back in about 2014, 15 as well, and, and in, in a couple of areas, certainly around blockchain, blockchain for impact. Uh, and I've been working with uh, SAT and, and delivered uh, solutions to the first blockchain for impact um, summit which the United Nations ran and it was the first time really that industry and the United Nations had come together heaven forbid because it is a very bureaucratic um, organization it's very fragmented people think that it's this one body it's not it's just it's hundreds of little fragmented components mm. uh, but the one good thing about that is that the 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 main overarching um, part um, you know the secretary general passionately believes around emergent technologies, particularly around blockchain, um, will empower and impact the sustainability goals. And so they did look to industry and obviously because I was one of the leaders in industry, um, I was asked to, again, in this case, look at, again, how we can empower SDG5, which is gender parity and gender impact, um, how we can use these technologies to improve the outcomes for women. 
but also how we can improve the outcomes for small to medium enterprises. So started, uh, went to the United Nations for the first time in 2015 to present at the United Nations General Assembly. Again, around some of my earlier patents uh, around tokenizing uh, what we would call unpaid work, how we can actually start to use the, the tokenized mechanism um, to value uh, a lot of the unpaid work in the economy that's done by women. So that was sort of my first entry into the United Nations. Uh, and then on uh, working with them and various players, including the Secretary General, to find ways of disseminating and educating people about these technologies. And, and in many ways, giving it credibility outside cryptocurrency. It was, it was about how do we use these technologies? And so... Funnily enough, the United Nations, e.g. UNESCO, were one of the first divisions of the United Nations to actually start to use um, cryptocurrencies to get money and exchange money in and out of some of the uh, high-risk areas uh, for like, charitable purposes because one of the challenges they had was the black market for cash was a huge issue going into some of the you know, war-torn countries. They were one of the first to actually implement um, digitised cryptocurrency mechanisms for people who wanted to, to donate and legitimately know that their money was going to go from point A to point B without an intermediary. And so they actually had a very high uptake of some of these technologies early on in the piece, and that was as a result of, of people like me being involved. But I think the other part to that, and it's not actually to do with the United Nations, but certainly sits um, at, at that level, was my work with the um, Nobel Peace Laureates the Permanent Secretariat of the Nobel Peace Laureates. Now, for those that don't know that, that is all the Nobel Peace Prize winners are laureates. Once they've won it, they're called a laureate, and there is a, there's a secretariat that looks after those globally. Now, generally, most of the laureates um, have a social impact focus uh, on, on their work. That's why they get the Nobel Peace Laureate, uh, Nobel Peace Prize. It's either to do with science or art or, or social impact around humanitarian aids and peace and various other things. What the Permanent Secretariat realised in 2017 was that technology was missing. So they were not also using, like the UN, they weren't using the technologies of IoT, AI, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, digital assets to benefit their cause. So I was asked by that, and I was, it's, it's probably one of my you know, pinnacle moments in my career, but to be asked by the Permanent Secretariat of the Nobel Peace Laureates to work with six of the Nobel Peace Prize winners, get to know them, get to know what their impacts were, e.g. the likes of, of, of um, Laimai Gabawi, uh, who works with women in Africa, uh, and to work with them to determine what are their challenges, what are the things that they that keep them awake at night, what's the things that hold back their work. And so over a period of a year, in 2017, I worked with seven of the Nobel Peace Prize winners and then at the Nobel Peace Laureate Summit in September 2019, got a charter out of them to develop a technology platform that will actually empower their underpinning challenges. And that was around, we call it a social impact exchange actually, where their work needed to be showcased. So again, we could get technologists involved to invest and support the work that they did. And that was an extraordinary outcome. It's never been done before. It was an inaugural time that to bring 
you know, it, as the in the end, it turned out being seven Nobel Peace laureates. Um, you know, Jane Jane Goodall, all of those sorts of people um, together to sign and agree on a technology platform that I led was, you know, quite extraordinary, and it was underpinned by blockchain and smart contracts and digital assets and and so forth. So, you know, my work in that humanitarian space uh, is really the driver for me because this is about people. These are about the have-nots in the world and how we can actually empower them so that everybody becomes somebody that has something. Uh, and, you know, that may be um, access to resources, uh, to, to live in a safe environment, et cetera. Uh, and, then, and, again, we can do those same, same, thing, same principles apply now when I'm, you know, working with the Ukraine Development Impact Bond. So that was sort of my work around the United Nations, but it does also focus on the economics and, and um, you know, developing methodologies where we can valorise some of the things that we don't normally put an ROI on, impact the, you know, climate change, all of those sorts of things. Uh, you know, it's all, it's all, it all fits into it all. They all piece together. People think, for example, that SDG five, which is about gender impact, is is a completely separate sustainability goal to climate change. It's actually not. In fact, with the anybody that attended COP twenty six would know that the Secretary General has said that unless we address SDG five, which is gender inequity, we will never address the sustainability goals because fifty point three percent of the population are significantly disadvantaged in the world and so this is where you know my work you know comes in I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a delegate for the UN Women UK on the on the commission for the status of women uh, and yet I'm still having conversations which pain me that we only have 14% of women working in technology and less than 3% of them in leadership roles and I myself personally even in the last two years have experienced the worst discrimination in my entire career um, and, and yet we're in the 21st century, we shouldn't be having these conversations. So that's sort of a lot of where my work is, how do we use these technologies to, to empower um, those who have less than others. Uh, thank you. This is, uh, first of all, congratulations. It's really astonishing. Um, and as well, I love the way you've been making a crossover between different institutions and as well the continuous work on this. I want to touch precisely the discrimination with women in tech. And I think this is a very sensitive subject and uh, being a father of a, of a lady and having a very strong wife and ex-wife as well, which have good relationships. One of the things I've been always is empowering. Um, and I know that it's not easy. Like you said, the percentages are very small. And for instance, this is actually happens, for instance, in the way we use social media, the discrimination and the sexism and a lot of things, but as well, from a salary perspective and other things. So could you tell us a bit about that? Because I think it's something that probably we don't, especially me, and I don't know enough as probably I should, but as well, I would like for our audience to understand the serious issues on this and actually to think about it. Because sometimes if you just speaking about it, it makes us think about it. I'd like mm -hmm. to hear this from you. Yeah, look, it's, again, I'm the same as you. I mean, I've got a daughter and I don't want to be having these conversations uh, when my grandchildren, you know, are, are my age. But let's, there's so many statistics out there and, and, and you know, women get tired. In fact, on International Women's Day this year, um, you know, I'm, I'm always full because, you know, I'm booked from beginning of the day to the end of the day having discussions. And one of the things that I say is that 
We don't need to prove it anymore. We know the statistics. There is a great, there's an, uh, there is a 15% greater ROI on a woman-led enterprise than a male-led enterprise. Now, I don't, I'm very careful about this. I don't say women only because I actually don't advocate that either because we, we, we don't want only. I, I, I work with people like you and, and others that are the most amazing male champions, but we need more of you. We need more to advocate because it won't be women that will change this. It will be, well, we'll lead it, but it'll, it'll require men to change it. But I want to bring it back to the facts and the stats, really. You know, my, my argument in this, this case would be if we know there is a 15% greater ROI, and that's statistically correct, right, then who is holding the, the VCs and the boards of companies accountable for making decisions where there are only 14% of women working and less than 3% um, in leadership, which is in tech. Now, there's some really big challenges here. We are at such a rapid rate of change. It's not just about money. So if you think about the last 2,000 years, it's taken us 2,000 years to get to where we are now. And despite what people would say, it is a, a world that's been designed for men by men. Um, and, and again, I say that people, people misunderstand women who speak about this. It's not because we hate men, by the way. I don't. I love men. I, I think they're an amazing species. But we have to be honest about it to be able to make change. So 2,000 years to get to where we are, technology that's been built and designed by men from their perspective. We're at such a rapid rate of change now. So, you know, we're talking about smart cities. If we produce a smart city that only includes 49.7% of the population, we will take another 2,000 years to change that. You, can't, you cannot have technology development when you've only got 14% of women working and 3% of leadership and say that you're building technology that's relevant for the world. You're not. And so we're creating a system that is already inherently biased. It's so critical at this point that we have level playing fields of conversations because men and women see things different. We're different beings. We balance each other beautifully. That's, that's the very nature of, of, of where we sit. And so it's not just about ROI. This is about the status of our world moving forward. This is about climate change. This is about smart cities. This is about how we move around. We know, for example, that women, out of every dollar that they earn, will reinvest 90% of that back into family and community and further development of their communities and education and various other things. A male will, will reinvest somewhere around about the 47 cents in the dollar. Now, and they keep and invest things in themselves and in other areas. So there's different ways that we look at things. And so it's very, very important that at this time, we have to intentionally engage in these conversations with women. And they're going to be uncomfortable. Um, uncomfortable doesn't mean conflict. It just means, oh, I'm feeling uncomfortable about these conversations. Um, but, you know, for women in the industry, it is so difficult. Um, we get women into the technology industry, but it's also one of the industries that is still inherently male-driven and extremely discriminatory. And so women leave. We get amazing women come into this and then realise how hard it is and leave. Um, 
I've got to say myself, sometimes I just get tired, really tired of carrying the gauntlet, being the one that's constantly hitting, you know, smashing those glass ceilings. I always laugh and say I carry an ice pick in my handbag. Um, But it's our thought processes initiate change. And if you remember, I thought it was really interesting actually at the release in in the House of Lords of the Smart Cities um, report, the two people that asked the most probing questions were two women and it was it was about access it was about identity it was about um use cases inclusion etc um the number of professors in the room uh you know there was women out outranked the number of men there uh and and yet in those in those areas we're asking those deep probing questions but we're, we're carrying a gauntlet um you know i'm doing i'm at the moment, uh, I'm about to lead a, a research project, and I discussed it actually at that point, around identity and access for the very young and the very old. Fantastic, we're in this digital world, but guess what? We've created a system where anybody younger than about the age of eight or nine can't actually access digital money without giving away their identity to someone else. We've, we've embedded a process that doesn't work, the same as, as elderly people. So... You know, I think um, much of much of my work in this space is not about is not just about women. It's about everyone because what women are fighting for are uh, equality and parity, but a better designed world where everybody is included. Um, you know, and I, I laugh about some practical things that people forget about. And this is nothing to do with technology per se, but wheels on suitcases the reason we have wheels on suitcases were because people who were disabled particularly those who are in wheelchairs couldn't carry their suitcases so the fact that we have wheels on suitcases comes from a change made because of inclusion of those with disability and that's impacted us profoundly because you imagine now not having a suitcase that doesn't have wheels heaven forbid um so they're some of the advantages that we have. We can't have smart cities if only, if only you know, 49% of the world is, is, is included. And so it is vitally important. Now, the comeback is always, oh, but we, we, we want to choose the best person for the role. Women will never be the best people for the role if they're not given the opportunity. And so I also, we talk about things like the gender gap um, and an employment gap and the lack of opportunity. But I want to talk about something else, and most people don't. It's called the cost chasm. So for every, every job that we go for, for every career change we have, for every patent that we develop, for every business that we start, we don't just have a gap that we have to meet. We have a chasm of additional costs that males don't have. Um, and so if you think about starting a business and it might cost $1,000, ours costs too because we have, we, have a, we have a roadblock at every challenge that we have to face. Um, and, and, again, I'll use myself as an example and I've, I've learned that, you know, people do look to me as an influencer in this space. And, and for, if I don't say it as it is, then we can't change it. But, you know, I've, as I said, I've worked. I've experienced the worst discrimination in my entire life in the last two years trying to get it, trying to get a global talent visa because as a woman in technology, I'm not recognised. I'm number 16 in the world 
I've got two honorary doctors and a professorship, and yet I'm not considered good enough by the um, decision makers to endorse my visa to get a visa. I'm not considered good enough. My work is only considered to be of some influence. How much better have I got to be? And that's, that's the sort of experiences that women experience. But what goes with that is not only the financial costs, the emotional costs, and I often talk about, I did a couple of um, workshops only about a month ago for universities worldwide, and I want to leave this conversation with this. Can you imagine how productive women could be if we didn't have to go through the secondary battle of all the challenges that we face? And that's imagine the resources that we could put into business if we didn't have to be challenged by that all the time. And I'm not the only one. It's constant. Uh, You know, so, you know, for, for me, for example, in my example this time, it's not the financial cost, which is thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds. It's the emotional cost. It's my family cost. It's while I'm struggling with that and I'm putting in 20 hours a week to fight the decision makers, which just makes no sense. I could be putting that into entrepreneurship. I could be doing research projects around other things. And so there is a massive inequity, but there's a cost chasm as well. And no one talks about that. You know, it's, it's, it, it's an in, incredible challenge. Um, the Secretary-General of the UN in 2021, there was a report released about women in tech and there is 69% of women in tech have been sexually propositioned in return for capital. Wow. we got to talk about it because, and more importantly, if women knock that sexual proposition back. Not only do they lose capital, there's repercussions. And these are some of the cost chasms. Now, this was a report that was delivered at the United Nations and the Secretary-General said, he was in tears. He said, if only a small percentage of these statistics were correct, he said, "This this is heartbreaking, this is critical. We've gone back 25 years in the last two years. Um, But I don't see it all as bad. So people, again, I don't want people to think that, we can't make change. We can, but we have to be honest about where we sit. And, you know, the, the talking about, and I know I've talked about it a few times, you, you know, your blueprint for smart, smart cities, it's a social contract. It's not about the technologies because technologies haven't created that inequity. We have, people have. We can use these technologies to empower us, but education is key to that. And, and, and I've, I I know the week of International Women's Day, on the Monday of that week, I spoke at the Albright Foundation about non-fungible tokens. And I was swamped by women afterwards because I took the conversation away from about being digital pieces of art and how, for example, and gave them an explanation of what a non-fungible token, and I prefer it to be called an asset rather than a token, actually are and what it could mean for women. I said, Do you realise it's a representation of singularity and uniqueness? You could turn your CV, your career, your business plan, your, um, you know, anything that's unique and singular 
into a token and that could be an element that can trigger a smart contract. These are the things that will empower women and change our access and change our position, give us an equal standing in life. But there's some work to be done because education still needs to be, you know, high on that on that level playing field. But we also need to do a lot of work around um, identity and access um, to access these digital worlds. So, you know, it's a critical space to be in. I see it as an exciting space to be in. It's a tiring space. I'm, I'm exhausted. There's some days where, where, um, and I can remember on International Women's Day, the day before I'd had a terrible experience, an you know, unnerving experience trying to fight my visa, trying to argue why I'm good enough to get a visa to, to live in the, in the UK. And then I'm the next day advocating to the world uh, around these technologies. And, you know, there's a, there's, there's a call. Visas could actually use blockchain technology so that instead of biased decision makers making decisions, it could go out to a decentralised mechanism based on the evidence they have and make a decision um, without bias. Um, and so these are, the, these are the things that are so key. Uh, you know, smart cities and, and digital, digitalisation and access to digital technologies are great if you include everyone. There is a great divide, though, at the moment, uh, and that needs to change. Um, and we need ways to bring more champions like yourself and many of my other colleagues to the, to the table, uh, which are amazing. Well, there's, there's so much there that I'm digesting. I think especially the, the incredible and, and scary numbers of, uh, especially the, the numbers you mentioned, I think it's repeating 69% of women are offered equity based on sexual favors. That is kind of scary and horrible, mm -hmm. let's put it that way. And, and I think it's crazy that it's still going the 21st century so there's a lot of work to be done um i really we passed one hour so i, I want to probably wrap up but I, I probably will get a second a second round because there's <laughs> a lot of things i still want to discuss but before we wrap up so I, I think these topics and i think for people listening to us definitely please think about these things because it's really important and as well it's urgent to take responsibility both the the sea level that are in the call uh, that are listening to us, but as well everyone, because there's a responsibility of us to change this. And I, I think another thing is about as well what you said, someone with your footprint. And unfortunately, the institutions and, and the countries don't have people that understand the value of what you're doing. I've been having a lot of cases like that, both for me and my family, and especially in this geolocation world where everyone is working with. We are all dependent of each other, all this kind of nationalism. And a lot of these things are randomly stupid and very narrow-minded, but unfortunately, there's no excuse for these things. And of course, the countries that don't take this series will lose talent and they will lose as well, um, well, the people that can actually make their these countries wealthier. But well, it's a long conversation that one, it takes us to a lot of directions that are um, much more complex than just that. So I want to touch with one final question that is related to your work with that tech. Um, we didn't touch much crypto, but you, you touched that partly. But that tech is is a big thing, and and uh, definitely, of course, the crypto can be used for gamification and to empower people. But I'd like to to touch the work top level of that tech that you've been doing, that I think it's really important for us to to look at this and see how we can actually look better on this and as well understand some of the case studies and some of the achievements you did in these areas and how you look at this. Yeah, look, I think. Interestingly enough, I, I delivered to the UK government in Westminster in 2019, you know, just prior, prior to the COVID, on um, education about blockchain. And uh, 
at the time, I think they thought I was going to talk all about technology and I didn't. I actually spoke about three areas. I spoke about um, how the, the technology is not just blockchain and people need to understand when I use the word blockchain, I don't just mean the blockchain. I mean the whole ecosystem of technology to support it. And, of course, you can't talk blockchain without fueling it with data and AI and IoT and various other things. So it includes all of that in one big, you know, vertical. So I talked about how that technology can make the institutions of education more efficient and shift resources. So uh, and, and at the moment they are fundamentally inefficient and so on that note, I just gave one example and, and I'm working with a number of companies in regard to this, one in particular called VD Exit, where there should not be an educational institution on this planet who is not issuing their credential on a blockchain. Now, that's not nascent, that's not new, it's able to be done. What's lacking is their motivation and their education and knowledge on how to do it. Now, you might think, well, Ladger, that's only a small change. No, it's not actually. Because if you can issue a credential on a blockchain, first of all, that gives it, it gives it credibility and lifelong, um, you know, immutability. And I can use that credibility as an individual for employment, for further education, for risk management, et cetera, obviously get rid of fraud and corruption and all of those sorts of things. But also it's efficient. It's I could, I could reduce the cost of, cre of credential issuance by greater than 75% by that one task. Now, if I can do that, then I've freed up more resources for those educational institutions to deliver cheaper, better education in other areas. I've shifted a resource that makes education more available for others. So that was sort of one area I spoke about. I also spoke about... Um, the use of emergent technologies, e.g. the metaverse, NFTs, tokenizing it, you know, the, the AR, VR space, and, and, and that's an area of my speciality too because I am an emergent technology, not just blockchain specialist, how we can use these technologies to change education. Now, I can give an example of that, and, again, it all ties into, uh, you know, the same ecosystem. The more that we use the metaverse and we start going into AR and VR education, I can have the best specialist, industry expert, academic from all over the world. I can have one in, in uh, Africa, one in Europe, one in the UK, one in the APAC region, and my classroom can be the world. It can be the emergent nations. It can be in a refugee camp. It can be anywhere. We don't have to physically be in the same space and we can deliver this amazing experience into the metaverse environment and we can, you know, gamify it. We can make it um, uh, where people can earn from learning in that gamified um, space. So, you know, all the gaming platforms like Decentraland and, and My Neighbor Alice and, and um, uh, Minds of Delania, for which I actually wrote all the terms and additions, by the way, because of my ecosystem experience. We can use what we know from those gaming platforms to deliver education. And it can be in nursing, it can be in health, it can be in finance, it can be in business, it can be anything. And so we can finally make education available to everyone. And then the third thing I spoke about was education about these technologies. Because the scary point in all of this is edtech is one of the growth industries in emerging technologies using these technologies to empower payments, 
to valorise intellectual property. I mean, it's as simple as, for example, using an application, which I've been working with um, for the last two years and helping them develop, where I can literally use my smartphone, my smart device, and I can actually load an, my IP directly to a blockchain that takes about 60 seconds. And that moment, even as a student or as an academic, my IP is now available and every time somebody accesses, I know it. Now, it might only be a fraction of a cent I get paid, but that's better than nothing because up till now that hasn't been valorised or able to be commercialised or quantified. So I talk about the education about these technologies as being critical because we also know that less than 3% of all boards and decision makers and politicians globally have any knowledge of emergent technologies and less than a half a percent of that 3% have knowledge about blockchain and its capacities with digital assets and NFTs and smart contracts. And unless they know, they can't make the right decisions on behalf of the world. And so that is critical. And that's also why we get so much pushback from producers of these technologies. It's not because um, the technologies aren't good. It's because the people making the decisions don't understand them. And so there's a sort of three areas that when I talk ed tech that I sort of like to to unpick and you know that could be a whole podcast on its own but um that's important and but i think for me it's about at this point is making these technologies accessible in a in a way that is simply as, as an application as i said i've been working with a company called vdx and making it's an app base where literally you can take any piece of um, self-created whether it be a report, like, for example, and you'll see um, one of the books that I wrote, Blockchain Impact, is the first book that's completely anchored to a blockchain. It's about making these technologies accessible um, so people start to use them. Oh, fantastic. And I think it's it's definitely the way to go. And um, and I think we are in the beginning of this, but we need to accelerate. And there's a lot of work, especially like you've been doing with your career, to take this and democratize, but as well to create digital literacy and digital education. That's partly one of the purpose of this YouTube channel. So, Lisa, I have a lot of more questions. I definitely, I want to do a second round and probably further as well. But I want to thank you for your time. Um, I appreciate as well uh, and congratulate you for your fantastic work, but as well for the activism in a positive level of pushing things forward, even independent of the challenge. And I'm sorry for that. And I hope that people listening to us understand how important this is for us, but as well to keep, what uh, I think, alert, but as well act because it's in our hands more than we think. Um, and I think we all have a responsibility for good and for bad about everything happening. Um, so thank you so much. I hope everyone loved the interview as I love it. And uh, I'm sure there'll be much more. Keep watching. And there's already, a, uh, we did a live before we do, so we'll come back here for doing a lot of things together. Thank you. Thanks, Dennis. Always, always an honor working with you. Always. Thank you. My pleasure.